Lord, thank you for this evening already. Lord, we feel your presence. And we ask that you bless your word, that you would speak to our hearts through your word, God. And may you powerfully change us, Lord, as we study your word. So, again, I pray for your Holy Spirit's strength and your power, God, to be upon us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I read this uh, article. It's a recent article. The, the headline to this article is online, I saw it, was this. New method revolutionizes heart transplants. And it's pretty recent. I think this was dated February of this year. Traditionally, a donor heart, right, is removed from a body and placed on ice. Then the heart needs to be transplanted within four hours. But that means it limits the distance that heart could be taken because of that four-hour travel, you know, how far it can travel. But now, in this article, it introduced this new technology, and it's called Heart in a Box. Heart in a box. The donated heart is basically placed in a box in this container, but then it's connected to a machine that pumps blood through the organ. And so this machine actually keeps the heart more working and more alive longer. So the device actually expands the number of hearts available for people for transplant by increasing now the lifespan of that heart and it, the, the distance the donor heart can travel. Doctors say they have successfully transplanted a heart that have been on the machine for more than nine hours now. I think it's awesome, the technology, right? Today, 8,500 people around there are on the wait list for a heart transplant. And this new box, they say, increases the chances for those in need of a new heart. A Dr. Schroeder, a surgical director at the heart transplant uh, uh, facility at Duke University said, the use of this technology is the biggest thing to happen in a heart transplant since heart transplant started. I think that, that was pretty amazing. It sounds like this heart in a box is, is just groundbreaking technology and to save many lives. Well, reading the article made me think about how God He's in the business of giving believers new hearts, too. We, we get spiritually a heart transplant, and, and not so much in a physical sense, but in this spiritual way. I think about Ezekiel 36, you guys know this, verses 26 to 27. And let me read to you uh, the NLT version. I kind of like the flow of this. It says in Ezekiel 36, 26, And I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart, I like that part, and give you a tender, responsive heart. And then verse 27 of Ezekiel 36 says, And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. So I love that. I like how it's worded there. So we know when we come to Christ that God, he gives us a new heart. We, we have a heart transplant in the Lord. Now, as we return to our study in the book of Acts, we come to chapter 10, and we find that the apostle Peter is really his, he has a new heart, and it's been changing, and it's going to go through a great 
change here. Matter of fact, it's the groundbreaking heart change of his life. And that's the title of our message tonight. The groundbreaking heart change. I almost said revolutionary. I almost tied it that, but I was like, no, this is groundbreaking. This is amazing what's going on, what we're going to be studying or beginning to study really in this chapter. So we're going to be studying Acts chapter 10 from verse 1 through 23 tonight. Verse 23 really is going to be a transitional verse. We're going to pick it up next week too. But basically 1 through 23. And there's three things we're going to see in this section, in this first part of this chapter. And this is what we're going to find. Number one, the seeking soul. Number two, we're going to find, oh, sorry, something's going around my iPad here, the shapeable mind. And number three, we're going to see the surrendered will, the surrendered will. I know it's like glitching here and there, but it's okay. God, you cannot be stopped. (laughs) So once again, the title, The Groundbreaking Heart Change. And number one, we'll look at the seeking soul, the seeking soul. Here we're going to cover verses 1 through 8 of Acts chapter 10. Let's go ahead and take a look at these verses. Um, Actually, just verse 1 and 2 will begin there. Acts 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Verse 2, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. All right, well, we begin here with Luke writing about this man, and we're given his name. His name in verse 1 is Cornelius. Sounds like a movie somewhere, yeah? Cornelius. And we find out some information about this man in verses 1 and 2. First of all, in the first part of verse 1, at Caesarea. So he lived in Caesarea. Now, Caesarea is kind of on the northern coast there in Israel, on the Mediterranean Sea. And at this time, it was headquarters really for the Roman government. And uh, like uh, Pilate, the governor, had a place there and all. And he had to travel down to Jerusalem with all the happenings when uh, the things happened with Jesus. With Jesus. Um, it was also a Gentile city. Now, those of you who have gone to Israel, that is one of the main stops we go to, Caesarea. It's a beautiful place. Uh, it, today, it's an ancient ruins there, but you can tell this was like awesome. Uh, I believe it was Caesar who gifted it to King Herod, and he kind of built it up into like this resort-like place. But it's a Gentile city, and here the Roman cover- government set up headquarters there. So, in Caesarea was this man, Cornelius, and we see what his job was. He was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Now, what we're reading here in verse 1, a centurion means he was a commander over 100 soldiers. Centi, right? The, the, the Greek word, centimeter, 100. So he was the commander over 100 soldiers. Now, um, what does it mean that was uh, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Well, what that's talking about, the Italian cohort is like a regiment. And think about it in that way. Cohort is one of the, the regiments, and he was one of the commanders of this regiment. See, let me break this down for you. A Roman legion, which, which this city 
had as headquarters of Rome, there was a military base there. A Roman legion had 6,000 soldiers. And those 6,000 soldiers were divided to 10 cohorts or regiments, which if you do the math, that's 600 men, right? So you had a general over that, and then you had a a commander over each of the 10 cohorts of 600 men. And then each cohort had six centurions. So they were broken up into six 100 little regiments there. And so Cornelius is one of the commanders over 100 soldiers, part of this Italian, a Roman cohort. Hopefully that makes sense to you. I know it's a lot of math, but I try to make it easy for you. You can listen to it again if you want. But um, uh, you can go back. So here is a centurion, a commander over uh, 100 Roman soldiers. He's a Roman guy. He's in Caesarea in headquarters of the Roman government, a military base, a Gentile city. But what's interesting about this centurion is in verse 2 it says he was a devout man. In other words, he was, he was loyal. He was dedicated to God. It says here he feared God, his household also, like his family, too, and his servants who were in his household. And so, in other words, this Gentile, this Roman commander, he believed in God. Now, back then, you had Gentiles who didn't believe in the one true God. You had uh, uh, one who turned to proselytes, where they actually uh, dedicated themselves to Judaism and got circumcised and all that. But in between that was a God-fearing Gentile or, or, or a Gentile who feared God. And so he believed in the one true God here. Matter of fact, so much so, and he was so devout that he gave alms, gifts, generously to the people. So he was always giving to God, giving offerings and gifts and helping people out. And it says here in verse 2, he prayed continually to God. So he prayed regularly. So so this guy was, was really seeking the one true God, the God of Judaism, the, of the Jews, and what we know, the, the, you know, the one true God, right? And so this is a good guy. This Roman centurion, he's a good guy. He's not into all the other gods of the empire and worshiping you know, Caesar's God. No, he was devout. He, he was into the, this religion, you can say, of the Jews, but... Understand, he was not saved. Now, note that even though Cornelius seemed like a good guy, he's seeking the one true God, we know he's not saved. And Acts chapter 11, verse 14 tells us, we'll see that later next chapter, that he, he's, he, he really isn't saved as Peter's sharing a testimony of what happens in chapter 10. And just a note here, it goes to show you, you can be devout in what you believe, You can be religious, you can give tithe, you can pray, but that doesn't mean it saves you. Just because you're religious, devout, or into some religion, or it doesn't mean you're saved. Only way you're saved is in Jesus, right? Only in Jesus Christ. So he hadn't come to that point of really believing and receiving Jesus in his heart. Yet, Cornelius, his true heart, did not go unnoticed by God. God is going to work in his life. Matter of fact, God is working this this 
planned, he's orchestrating in his providence this plan for Cornelius to be saved. And this is what Luke is ramping up here, writing to, to us here. He's telling this story, and he's beginning to tell us about who this guy is, Cornelius. Now, look at verse 3 now. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. All right, now Luke begins to tell us here in verse 3 as he goes on with the story that about the ninth hour of the day, God sends this angel in a vision now to Cornelius. Now, the ninth hour in Jewish terms is 3 p.m. Uh, the, the, the third hour uh, would be like um, uh, 6 or 9. 9. It starts at 6 a.m. Three hours later, it would be 9 a.m. The sixth hour would be 12 p.m. And so, is that right? Yeah, in the ninth hour, I'm getting my math mixed up here. In the ninth hour, it would be 3 p.m. So I was thinking that normally the Jews pray three times a day, 6, 9, or 1, yeah, 6, 12, and 3. And it would seem like maybe he was following that. So at 3 p.m. when the Jews would normally pray, here comes this vision. He's praying, and then God meets him in this vision as an angel comes to him. Now, when the angel came and called them, can you imagine an angel coming to you and calling your name? Hey, Rick. Whoa, yeah, I would be in terror too. Like this being, you know, with the glory of heaven upon him and this, this angel just, you know, right there. And you probably could feel that presence and holiness of heaven. And so he stared at him like, he probably was like deer in headlights. Whoa, you know, with terror. He, he was a, afraid. And he's like, oh, what is it, Lord? Now, the, Lord, the word Lord there, he's probably using it more as master, like, oh, this is a being greater than him, right? Well, the angel has a message from the Lord. And so the angel says to him, hey, Cornelius, no worries here. Your prayers, your alms, the gifts you've been giving, have ascended as a memorial before the Lord. Now, memorial, in other words, it, it, it means like it, it, it's been a, You've been honoring God with your gifts, with your prayers. God has seen that like an honor to him. Perhaps maybe at this moment, maybe he was praying 3 p.m. Perhaps maybe he was, he was saying, God, I, I just want to honor you. God, I, I, I'm doing all this for you. And perhaps he's praying like, God, I really want to know you. And perhaps he could feel in his own heart it's not good his life's not good he has sinned maybe his heart is messed up and so he, maybe he's like what what do i do god i i, I want to know you i, I want to maybe be saved i want to do this and I, and i say this because you know religion just being religious and being devout in that way 
It can never change your heart. Only Jesus can. So I kind of was looking into this thinking, wow, he, he probably really has this true desire to know the one true God, but, but he can't get there all the way because you can't get there all the way without Jesus Christ. But he's praying. So perhaps in his prayers, and God hears that, and he sends the angel, and he's like, hey, we've seen you. We've seen your memorial. We've seen how you honor God. You memorialize God in, in everything. And we see your heart. And so the angel gives him the message from God. God has a plan for him to maybe know God better. Perhaps that's what's going to have his heart really change. So in God's plan, he gives him these instructions. So he says in verse 3, Okay, send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He goes, go, in other words, go send some guys to Joppa, and then get Peter and bring him back here. And where are you going to find him? Well, verse 6, he's lodging with another Simon, but he's a tanner. So go get Simon, the one who we call Peter, but go to Simon, the tanner, right? And his house is by the ocean there. You'll, you'll be able to find him and, just, and, and bring him back. So when the angel spoke that, uh, and departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier. Seems like the soldier was seeking God too. And uh, uh, he called them out and related everything that was said, and he sent them over to Joppa. Now, if you remember, we ended chapter 9 with Peter staying at the house of Simon the Tanner, if you remember that, right? We ended a chapter there in verse 43 of chapter 9. So that set us up to what's going on here. So the angels instructing Cornelius to send these guys to Joppa and bring them over. Now, Cornelius here does exactly what was instructed. He sent men to Joppa. And I like his heart. He goes, okay, right, Lord. He, he doesn't question it. He, he doesn't say, well, why, why can't I go? You know, no, I want you to come. It's all part of God's plan here. Sometimes we're like, God, it, it doesn't make sense, right? Our reasoning is, no, why don't I go? Sometimes we, we push that. But in pure obedience, we should just listen and say, okay, all right, Lord, I'm going to trust you in what you want me to do. Sinclair Ferguson, he was a theologian and author, and I like his books. Uh, he said this. Be obedient even when you do not know where obedience may lead you. I love that. If God has you do something, then we've got to be obedient, even though we don't know why or we don't know what's going on or, or where it's going to lead us. And so Cornelius, this devout man, you can tell his heart here, right, that he's just obeying what the Lord said. So God's plan is about bringing Cornelius to the Lord. So we see the seeking soul of the centurion will be rewarded with salvation in Jesus. And that's what I want you to see. God in his plan. God is working something here. God hears his prayers. God sees what he's doing. God sees his seeking soul. And so the seeking soul of centurion, he's going to be rewarded with salvation in Jesus. God's going to meet him. God's going to answer his prayer in this way. It makes me think about Jeremiah 29, 13 that says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all 
your heart. I believe in God's grace. I believe in his love. And I believe he sees the heart that moves toward him. Even though the heart may not be perfect, even though our steps might not be right or perfect, but but he sees our desire as we do our best to try and, and, and seek God to get closer. And he sees that heart. And you know what? God, in his love and grace, he moves heaven and earth to bring you to Jesus. He does that. That's what I see Jeremiah 29, 13 saying. That's what I see even in God's plan. I mean, not just saving Cornelius, you know, and his household, but um, we're going to see overall in his plan for reaching to the Gentiles. He's working all this in his plan, but he sees Cornelius as the angel says, look, your prayers, your arms, alms, verse 4, ascended as a memorial, as honoring God. God's been touched by that. God sees it. So understand this tonight. If you're here or you're connected online or you're listening to this later, you know, you're not listening. You're not connected here. You're not here by chance. It's a divine appointment. And God sees you making that effort to come here, to put things aside, to connect online, to, to take the time to listen maybe later on the podcast or, or on an archive a video. He sees that. He sees your heart. That, no, God, I, I know I could do a million other things. I, I could be at home, you know, falling asleep. But no, I'm, I'm, I'm here for you, God. I'm, I, I'm, that's what I would be doing, falling asleep. I'll probably watch something. I'm, I'm already asleep. But no, I'm here for you. And no matter how hard it is, God, I'm seeking you. At, and that's what I see in this heart of the centurion, this seeking soul, and God is going to reward him. And God wants to meet you and bless you as you seek him. Maybe you've never given your heart to Jesus. Well, God is here to, to, to come to you, to welcome you and receive him in your heart. Give your life to him tonight. You know, I was thinking about this one before I was saved. A friend of mine asked me, hey, do you believe in God? A friend I was hanging out with, and I was like 14 years old. And, and you know what? I told him, oh, yeah. Because I remember when I was small, like, I don't know, five or six, my auntie would take us to church. And I think that's where I really got my concept about God but it didn't last too long but you know when he said that it sparked my mind to oh yeah 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 I I believe in God but when he said that you know what I started to do I just started to pray on my own I just started to pray you know and 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 just pray to God I didn't know what I was doing but I, I thought well yeah I believe in God and I just tried to talk to God the best I could And then, well, he took me to church, and the second time I went to church was when I gave my life to Christ. And I remember when the altar call was being given, I I felt this heaviness on my heart, and I knew it was God. I knew it was Jesus. And and even though if I, I didn't understand everything about sin and my sin forgiveness, all I knew was that I wanted Jesus, nothing else. And you know what? Even though I didn't understand everything and I, wa- I wanted Jesus, I wanted to live for him, God still came into my life. God still received me as I accepted him into my heart. And so this is the Lord we have. You'll seek me and find me. If you seek me, if you seek me with all your heart, you know what? You're going to find me. 
And this is the centurion and what God is setting up for him. So understand that as we look at Cornelius, and he's going to come back into the picture. We're going to see this next time. Um, I couldn't fit everything in, so we're going to go into this next time in the second half of the chapter. But understand, though Cornelius, he's not perfect, you know. His heart's not perfect. But even with that little bit of him or even a lot of bit of him inside who wanted God, God is going to come and bring a ground breaking heart change for the seeking soul. So, this is Cornelius, the seeking soul. Let's go to number two now. The shapeable mind. <clears throat> the shapeable mind. Here we're going to cover the next section, which is from verse 9 through 16. 9 through 16. And let's go ahead and read that whole section. Acts chapter 10, verse 9, it says, The next day, As they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. We'll stop there. Now, the next day, after this angel had appeared to Cornelius, and Cornelius dispatches his guys to go find Peter in Joppa, uh, which is actually 30 miles south of Caesarea. So the next day, as they were journeying, making their, their trek down 30 miles and approaching the city, well, where do we find Peter? Peter's up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Now, if you've been, ever been to Israel, you, you see that mo- a lot of the houses there, the older houses, they have a flat roof. And it's because uh, they make a little lanai up there where they can go upstairs and find, you know, like coolness up there and kind of hang out there and all. So Peter went up there to, uh, that's like his prayer closet, his prayer place to go up on the roof. He can find, you know, solitude there and, and spend time in prayer. And it says here is about the sixth hour. That's 12 p.m. So Peter, he's a good Jewish man, right? He, he prays in the morning, he prays at 12, he prays at 3. And so this is the noontime prayer. Now, uh, in verse 10, it says he became hungry. It was like lunchtime, and he's praying and he wanted something to eat. He's kind of hungry. Perhaps, you know, they, it says while they're preparing it, maybe he could smell it, you know. It's like um, <clears throat> uh, the other morning I was in the water, and, and uh, uh, there's some restaurants on the shore, and, and you could smell the Portuguese sausage and, you know, the eggs, the breakfast. I'm like, oh, it's making me hungry. Yeah. So, so you can imagine Peter's, like, praying. He's like, All I could think about is is food. But that was God's plan, (laughs) right? This is all God's plan to show Peter his plan or what he's doing through 
food. Now, before we go on, God's been little by little changing Peter. We talked about that, didn't we, last time? We ended with that in our last message in chapter 9. And little by little, he's been changing this devout Jewish man's heart. Peter's been seeing the Samaritan save, right? The, the Hapa Jews or part Gentiles, which uh, traditionally the Jews didn't like them. But God's saving him. The whole, matter of fact, Acts 8, he, he experienced the Holy Spirit baptizing them. He was the one. Him and John came and prayed over them. And they received the Spirit just like they did, these Jewish Christians. And then, right, he's staying with, with Simon the tanner. He skins animals and and. and uh, someone as that job is considered unclean, and you wouldn't stay uh, uh, in his house. A, a Jewish man would never stay in his house. And now he, here's Peter there, right? Talked about him touching a dead person and raising, right, um, uh, uh, Tabitha to life, right? And and so here, God's been changing his life, his heart, really, his heart more and more. And so we understand also that. As the gospel went out from Jerusalem, remember first Jerusalem, uh, Acts 1-8, then to Judea, Samaria, and now God is working on the next part of that verse is to the ends of the earth, which is speaking of the Gentiles. But here's a Jewish man, and he's been raised in this way that, that Jews are separate from the Gentiles. Gentiles, oh no, they're defiled. You know, they're, they, they don't. They're not saved. Jews would talk about, well, God made Gentiles to feel the fires of hell. That's what they would say, actually. And so they were so separate from the Gentiles. But now God's doing something, right? He's reaching to the Gentiles to save the Gentiles. And now there's this, there's this final part, I feel like, in Peter's heart that God has to take care of. There's this prejudice. There's this how he grew up, this tradition and how he was raised about these Gentiles has to be broken down, this prejudice. So little by little, God's been working. Little by little, changing his heart. Samaritans, okay. But now God's about to reach the Gentiles to the ends of the earth. And Peter's a key player in this. We're going to see later Paul is apostle to Gentiles and Acts is going to focus in on Paul later. But you know who the pioneer guy to reach the Gentiles is? Peter. And this is the story and how that happens. So, verse 11, or end of verse 10, right? He's praying, he's hungry, and he fell into a trance. In other words, he got pulled into a vision. That's what this is. He got pulled into a vision. And what did he see? Well, the heavens open and, and something like, this great sheet, maybe a big tarp, came down from heaven, from the skies, being let down. Let down, perhaps there was ropes tied to the four corners, maybe, you know. And there, it's just going, shh, kind of coming down in that way. Uh, down in front of him, four corners upon the earth. So I, I would say just all like, you know, right in front of him, down on the earth. And remember, it's a vision. And on the sheet, in it, were all kinds of animals, reptiles, and birds of the air. In other words, we're going to see there was what was uh, uh, ritually clean animals that you can eat and unclean animals. It was all put, everything was in there on this sheet. And then he heard a voice, and of course this is the Lord, right? 
the voice said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And then Peter said, whoa, no, by no means, Lord. Right? The Lord speaking, I have never eaten anything that is common, in other words, clean or unclean. I've never eaten, um, I'm sorry, that is uh, unclean or not kosher. I, I would say common mean like not kosher. Kosher means like pure or allowed. So he was a good Jewish man raised in that way. Like, look, I, 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 God, I, I can't do this. What do you mean? What you're, what you're telling me? that That's really hard to swallow. It's a joke. But, right, so it's kind of, I don't know. Peter was raised in a traditional strict, in their strict Jewish customs. And so he only ate what the law allowed in the Old Testament. And he stayed faithful to that. And he was still faithful to that. So you can imagine, this is like, wait, what, what, Lord, what? You, what? I see a lot of things I can't eat that I'm, I, I grew up that I'm not allowed to eat. And you're saying, what, eat? Lord, oh, no, no, Lord. And actually, those are two words that shouldn't be together, right? No and Lord, right? If you use the Lord, you better obey, right? So here's, here's Peter, right? And, and I'm sure he's kind of like, uh, uh, by no means, you know. Uh, uh, maybe he didn't say no, Lord, because he, he got, like, rebuked before when he said things like that, right? Uh, 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 I don't know. No, no, I'm, I'm faithful to you, God. I'm not going to eat everything. Well, back in Leviticus 11, God laid down this diet for Israel. You know, things like a split hoof you can eat, a cow, a sheep, deer, certain birds like you can eat chicken, quail, turkey, certain things in the sea like fish, tuna, salmon. But the things that were not kosher or, or you know, not pure or not allowed was like shrimp, crab, lobster, because you can only eat things with fins or scales. Um, you couldn't eat scavenger birds like an eagle or a gull. Uh, you can eat a rab- You cannot eat a rabbit or camel. That was not cor- kosher. Horses, and of course, as we know, the most uh, known thing is a pig. Right? They cannot eat pork. God really mandated that. So there was things that the Israelites could eat and things that they couldn't eat, and God mandated that in the Old Testament law. Well, why is that? Why why would God do that? And why is it? being changed now. I mean, this is a pivotal chapter, really. And some people, even today, I remember years ago, I heard a pastor saying, he went to the Old Testament. See, you're not supposed to eat raw fish. You're not supposed to eat this. You're not supposed to eat, and that's unhealthy for us. So we got to do that. I'm thinking, wait, but what about Acts 10? How could you preach that God is saying not to eat that? Yet here we're saying the opposite, seeing the opposite. So why? Why was there some food they could eat and some food they couldn't eat. Why couldn't they eat the other food? Well, uh, partly it's, um, it's because their food preparation back in the ancient times wasn't so great, and so he could understand it to protect from disease. But the real reason, mostly the reason, was to separate Israel from the pagan nations, to separate Israel, Israel from the pagan customs. See, back, back then in the Old Testament, you know, as they're going into the Promised Land, they're going to Canaan, God didn't want them to partake in these big 
pagan banquets that would, they had and ate whatever because all part of worshiping their gods and it would turn into this big like sexual orgy kind of thing. And so God drew a line here and God was drawing these lines for them, for Israel to show that they are separated to God and that their life is to be lived for God by following these mandates on what to eat, not to eat, and not fall into the same uh, pagan rituals that the world was doing, the, the Canaanites and all were doing. That's why in uh, Leviticus 11, verse 20, God says, you will be holy unto me. The word holy means separate. You can be separated to me. So that's why it was mandated. That's why in the Old Testament we see that. But now as we come into chapter 10, now that the Gentiles are about to be given the opportunity to receive Jesus Christ, things are different on this side of the cross. Understand, through the centuries, that line that, Israel, that God made so that Israel would be separated to God, that line became more darker and bolder into how the Jews felt like, well, no, we, we got to separate ourselves from the Gentiles. We, we can't do anything. We, and, and even condemning them, as I told you. And that was never God's intention. Remember, Israel was to be a light to the world. They were to bring God. But, is, but the Jews became, no, it's just us. You guys are, aren't part of this. And so now, in Christ... This social line that was made has to be removed. Why? So that Jew and Gentile, that Jews can get saved, Gentiles can be saved, and they could both come together as this new entity, Christians. That's why. So that line has to be taken away. That's not a separateness anymore. We're all coming together under Christ now on this side of the cross. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul really talks about this. And he comes into verse 14 saying this, For he himself, talking about Christ, is our peace. That means peace between Jew and Gentiles, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, in his body, the dividing wall of hostility. So you see, as 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 Gentiles are getting saved in Christ now, and as Jews are getting saved, remember there, there, there was that whole controversy in Romans 14, like, oh, well, well, you know, these Christian Gentiles invite us, you know, to their house and have barbecue, but, but they got meat from the store, that, that leftover meat that were offered to idols. We can't eat that, you know. And Paul's like, hey, don't make them eat that, you know. Don't, don't stumble that, and, and don't require, you know, them to do that so it's this balance but it was a time for them for the body to come together jew and gentiles and here what we're seeing is god with this sheet now showing peter that that dividing line is to go away now so in verse 15 the voice came to him a second time what god has made clean do not call common or unclean or not kosher so peter's like no i can't do it but god says you know what what i say yeah is clean now that it's okay to eat don't tell me that it's not kosher you know don't make it you know not clean i'm saying it's okay it's all right it's okay 
So this is how God was bringing both Jew and Gentiles together in Christ by abolishing this dietary, Old Testament diet, uh, dietary laws. See, God is working on his heart now. He's, he's removing those last bits of prejudice and those last bits of how he was trained and grew up and bringing him, him that part of his heart into a new heart. He's re re renewing that part of his heart. And so God, using the sheep and all the animals there, the real meaning here was God's going to save Gentiles too. Jesus is not just for the Jews, but it's for the whole world. And I'm glad. I'm glad. Because I'm a Gentile. Well, most of you are Gentiles. And I'm glad. That's not just, Jesus isn't just for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles too. And I'm, I'm so glad that I can be Say, And so just to make sure that Peter really understands that this is what the Lord wants to do. Verse 16, this happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So I, I don't know if God brought it down again and then wait, you know, eat. No, I can't. No, what I say is clean is clean. You can eat. And so just to make sure God underlined it, highlighted it and said, Peter, this is it. This is what's going on. So it's not like the Old Testament Jews. Now, every person can be God's people in Jesus, right? Uh, before it was Israel who was God's chosen people. But now every person, Gentile and Jew, Peter, yeah, I would say, is now ready to understand all of this. I think Peter's getting, it's not so much about what you eat or not eat, but it's about, you know what, we're, we're together in Christ. It's about having a pure heart toward each other. There's no more wall like the Apostle Paul wrote. Actually, if we think about it, Jesus hinted toward this time in Mark 7. He talked about how, remember, it's not what goes into a person that defiles them. It's not what's on the outside that defiles them. It's, it, it's not what you eat. I mean, he says you eat it, the stomach processes it, your body processes it. But it's what comes out from the inside. And in Mark 7, 21, he says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. And he goes through this whole list of things. And then he says, this is what defiles. So the issue here is the heart, really. It's the heart. So God is working on Peter on the inside. And he starts with his mind showing him, look, this is what it is. This is what I'm telling you. This is what I want you to see and understand in your mind. And so it starts here as he's already in Jesus. He's already following Jesus. He's saved, right? So I believe God has given the shapeable mind. That's my heading. He's given the shapeable mind, and the shapeable mind of Peter is now to understand and go with God's plan for the Gentiles. That's what he's doing. He's showing him these things. He's putting into his mind, look, it's okay. Look, you can eat. Understand. Understand this plan that I have with this. And I believe Peter's getting it because he has the shapeable mind in Jesus now. Christian author W.J. Dawson said, if you would voyage Godward, you must see to it that the rudder of your thought is 
right. I read that and go, oh, that's kind of deep, <laughs> right? But the rudder of your thought, of your mind, is right, that it's, it's right. And this is what God is doing. He's correcting his thinking. He's correcting everything that he's, he grew up with, saying, no, wait, now on this side of the cross, it's not this way anymore. Gentiles actually can be saved. It's not, it's not like you can eat this or not eat this. No, it's not about that. He's using that to say Gentiles can be saved. And he's changing that last part of, part of his heart through his mind. It starts in our mind, doesn't it? Change. Yeah. And what we think Right, we grow with, and so that's why I say Peter has a shapeable mind. God's giving it to him, and now God's helping him to start in his mind, and then it's going to change his heart. You know, if prejudice is in your mind, what's going to come out of your heart? Same thing. You know what I like to think is that God would give us a teachable spirit. Yeah, that we would always be open to the Lord and be teachable. I remember a guy a long time ago would always pray that. that wow, that, that's what I want. I want to have a teachable mind, a teachable spirit, like Peter has here. And that's why God comes to him. He's been changing, as we've seen. He's living, staying at the Simon the Tanner's house. Here's one more thing. We've got to work on this food thing because, it's, because I want you to go into a Gentile's house, and that's what we're going to see. You know, it's been told after the Civil War, Robert E. Lee, General Robert E. Lee, was in a church in Washington, D.C., and he kneeled down next to an African-American man while taking communion in the service. Someone asked him, how, how could you do that? You know what he said? He said, all ground is level beneath the cross. I like that. You know, we have to remember that, right? That Christ died for that other person too. And sometimes we, we draw lines, put up walls, and we're prejudiced in that way, but Christ died for them too. And Christ died for the Gentiles too. And this is what God is teaching Peter and changing in him and shaping his mind to what God has planned. All right. The groundbreaking heart change is happening here by preparing the seeking soul and with Peter the shapeable mind. And now we come finally to the surrendered will, the surrendered will. Here we cover the rest of our passage from verse, verse 17 through 23. But take a look at verse 17. Now Peter was inwardly perplexed as what the vision that he had seen might mean. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate, like at the house where he was staying, and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. We'll stop there. Okay, so Peter is inwardly perplexed, verse 17. In other words, he, he's wondering here. He's, he's kind of, whoa. I mean, you have to understand, this is like totally 
180 from how he grew up and in his loyalty and faithfulness to the law that he followed. And he's like, wait, okay, Lord, you want me to do this? He understands that. He has that shapeable mind, but he's still kind of trying to, I guess, wrap his mind around it and, and, and processing this. That's probably a better word. He's processing all of this. And while he's doing that, up at the top of the house, on the housetop, Right, the, those men, the, the the servant and the centurion, the servants and centurion who sent by Cornelius, they came and found the house, Simon the Tanner's house. They're at the gate, and maybe, hey, 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 anyone here? Hey, is 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 this where Simon, who's called Peter, is this where he's staying? Right, and so verse nineteen, while he was pondering the vision, you know, the word pondering means like meditating on what God was telling. He was. He was really focused in on this. He was really receiving this and just, just, just you know, like soaking in everything. The Spirit comes in and says, look, hey, there's three men and they're looking for you. Get up, go down, and, you know, go with them. And I like this, without hesitation. Go. You know, don't, like, question it. Don't, like, oh, sure, you know, um, but just, you know, Go. Listen to them and go, for I have sent them. So the Spirit, God has sent them. So then verse 21, And Peter went down, so he went downstairs, went to the men who were outside and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, everything Luke told us about, who is well spoken by the whole Jewish nation. So he was recognized. This, This guy was a good guy was directed by a holy angel, Peter's probably going, whoa, an angel of God, to send for you, what, to come to me? Peter's probably thinking, to come to his house, this house, and to hear what you have to say. Now, that must have been amazing for Peter to to hear, right? To hear what Peter has to say? What's that? That's an open door, right? Isn't that an open door to share Jesus Christ? I mean, why is Peter there? He's been witnessing Jesus and teaching about the Lord and all that. So verse 23, invited them to be his guests. So they stayed there. And the next day, uh, he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So he took some guys with him. And he headed to Caesarea on the next day as soon as he could. Probably they just stayed the night talking a little more and made ready for their journey. And then they went. And we're going to see what's going to happen next time. Again, verse 23 is like this transitional verse. But I want, I want to focus in on is understand at this moment when these guys came and, and, and they said, well, we want to hear, Cornelius wants to hear what you have to say. I bet you it all clicked for Peter. It made sense. Cornelius, he's a Roman centurion. He's a Gentile. Where is he at? Caesarea. That's a Gentile city. You know, if a Jew was, uh, Jews were supposed to uh, avoid Gentile cities because the dirt of that city was, it would defile them. And if, if not, they had to be ritually cleansed. Uh, to step in a Gentile's house wasn't right either. And so now here's Peter being invited to the Roman centurion's house to go to his house, to go to inside a Gentile's house, to go to a Gentile city, especially a Roman soldier that the Jews hated for the enforcement and abuse and, and all. I bet the gears in Peter's brain was beginning to turn and everything was 
clicking. And now the vision that he saw made sense. God was changing his heart. This is groundbreaking heart change here. Now he sees God is reaching out to the Gentiles, and God wants Peter to be the one, so that's why he went the next day without hesitation. This was the Lord. And so the surrendered will of Peter is now ready to share Jesus with the Gentile Roman centurion. That's what's happening here. God has completely changed the heart of Peter here. And now his will, now the will of his heart is surrendered to God. Okay, God, I got it. I'm going. He, he, he's not uh, arguing against God. He's not saying, oh, no, by no means, Lord. What? I can't. No. He understands what God is saying. That for so long, the, the Jews are saying, no, Gentiles are unclean. But now Peter says, no, they can be clean in Christ now. I was thinking of how it said the heart is amazing marvel. Yeah. It beats automatically 75 times a minute or more, 40 million times a year, 2.5 billion in a life of 70 years. It pushes four ounces of blood, and that would equal to three gallons a day or 650, 3,000 gallons a day or 650,000 gallons a year. And that's enough to fill more than 81 uh, train tank cars. A heart, it says, does enough work in one hour to lift a 150-pound man to the top of a three-story building. Uh, It has the power, if you add it up 70 years, all its power, to lift the largest battleship completely out of the water. The heart is strong. But you know what I think the strongest part of the heart is is the will the heart's will it can fight god it can fight against another person and hold on to its will but when it surrenders its will to god it's unstoppable and when it surrenders to god's will it can become the greatest power on earth and this is peter this is the surrendered will mighty miracles are going to happen. People are going to get saved. Peter is the pioneer apostle to bring the gospel, to bring Jesus to the Gentiles. Think about if God can get hold of your heart. Yeah, If we surrender our will to God, what can he do? People can get saved. I heard about a man who was walking across the street when the Holy Spirit told him to witness to this policeman standing nearby. He doubted, well, no, I don't think it's the Lord. Um, I'm kind of in a hurry. And he was just ready to dismiss it when he thought, you know what? I would never think about this on my own. It must be God. So he surrendered his will, submitted to what the Spirit was saying, and he went up to the policeman, handed him a track, and just said, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? And you know what the policeman said? How did you know? I've been thinking about that. How can I receive Jesus as my Savior? That was the Lord right then and there. Well, as we close, see, God wants our heart, all of our heart. God wants our will surrendered to his and our prejudices broken down. 
I like this story. It's a true story, and I'll close with this. A wealthy English man named Oliver Brockbank heard D.L. Moody preach at Cambridge, where he was attending school. After he finished school, he came back home to Manchester, and you know what? He had a heart for the poor. He had, he had a broken heart for the poor. His prejudices were gone, and he had compassion for the lower class in society. Remember, he was a very wealthy person, and he, and he went to this nice college. His, his burden now was not the benefits of the upper-class life, right, of, of the higher-class society, but his burden was that the poor would come to be saved. And he also knew that the local Anglican church, uh, the poor would never go there because, you know what, you were required, get this, you were required to pay a pew, pew rent. So the wealthy would pay, you know, money to have a certain section of the pew where they could sit and everything like that. And so that church required that. It was part of their fundraising and, and all that. So Oliver, he went around that. He knew that wasn't a place. He ended up witnessing to his gardener, and his gardener got saved. Then together they started a men's Bible study in one of um, Oliver's homes. Then in 1893, he built a building there, which was a big, he built a building which turned into a church, and it turned into a network of churches as God multiplied his efforts in reaching common people with Jesus Christ. It is said of Oliver Brockbank, he could have stayed with his quote-unquote own kind. Instead, he loved and invested himself fully in reaching the poor of the city. As far as I know, thousands came to know Jesus through him. And even after his death, his, 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 his work goes on here. I like that. That's what God does. God changes our hearts. God changes us from the inside out. And sometimes it's big changes. Sometimes it's little changes. But he's always moving in our hearts to complete that change of our heart. And he's the one that does that groundbreaking heart change. Let's pray. God, thank you for speaking to us, God. Lord, we, we want a heart change, God. We don't want to stay the same. And we know that every circumstance, Lord, is doing that thing. That when you speak to us through your word, it's doing that, God. And so, Lord, continue to change the parts of our heart that shouldn't be like that, that it's part of our, our, the old part of us, Lord, the old sinful self. But, Lord, mold us, shape us, God. Speak to our minds so our hearts would change. Lord, that you continue to take that new heart that you put in us and make it more like you, Jesus. Let the old prejudices die, God, and may all we want is to surrender our will to your will to see you work through us. So, God, here we are, surrendered to you, Lord. And, God, we know you can do incredible things, Lord. It's, it was an incredible thing that you saved us, God. And we know that once you saved us, you can continue to do this incredible thing in changing us and then using us for your glory as we are obedient to you. Thank you, God, in Jesus' name.
Amen.